0: Great to have you along this evening. Good to be, good to be together, hey? And um, didn't the band, band do a good job? We don't, we don't applause them that much, but let's give them some encouragement. Thanks, guys, so much for leading us. Um, really, really do appreciate that. Aaron, your announcements. Um, we're not going to applaud the announcements. Oh, we could. I mean, yeah, why not? Um, you, there was a button up there for next Sunday night, um, hot topics and hot chocolate. Awesome, hey? Well, the hot chocolate is, well, that's pretty self-explanatory. The hot topics, um, they're basically, um, if you would like to give us some feedback, just, h- hey, difficult issues that you'd like us to tackle, we'll, um, I, I don't know, we'll tackle as, as many as we can, but the idea was to just have a, oh, mix, mix things up a little bit and to have a, a little panel um, up here on the stage, or wherever, somewhere around here, but a little a little panel to discuss some hot topics. Of course, though, so if you can feed them to us ahead of time, that'd be fantastic because then we can do just a little bit of preparation on on those. So, if you've got a hot topic, just kind of, you know, uh, I don't know. After yesterday's performance, we'll Carlton. Win the grand final. I don't know. Something like that. Um, is it mathematically possible? Uh, just any, any, uh, it's not. Dang. Uh, well, 2020, 20, 20, Okay. <laughs> any season for Carlton is preseason. Um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately. But if you've got a hot topic and you'd like us to address it, um, just just write it down. Don't even have to put your name to it. Um, hand it to a staff member. We'd love to have a little bit of a look at it. And if we think we know the answer, we'll, we'll tell you next week. We don't talk about it next week. We obviously didn't know the answer. Um, so, yeah, uh, that'll be, that's, that's next Sunday. Um, so that, that should be good. Hey, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the um, opportunity to worship together, to, to use our, our voices, to accompany the, the music and the singing just join our hearts together in, in praise, just singing out truth, truth that touches the heart and speaks to the mind. It's good to do. You designed us for it. I really believe that. And there's, there's a special way in which as we engage in that, something, something beautiful happens deep within us. And we pray that you continue that deep work now as we open up your word together. Come, Holy Spirit, now. Speak to us through your word. Minister to each and every one of us. I know there's something here for everyone to learn. So so help us to just have willing hearts, open open hearts to whatever it is that you might have to say. We ask this in your precious name, Jesus, and thank you so much. Amen. We had a little prayer time, which, by the way, you're always welcome to, to join us. It's usually from around quarter past four to... Court to five um, in that back room, and, and Ollie mentioned the verse uh, today. Better is one day in the courts than a than a thousand elsewhere. And wow, well, how the how the psalmist was was caught up in that that thought. Now, more likely than not, you could you could picture the psalmist back then walking around Solomon's temple, various courtyards, the courtyard for the Gentiles, and then the women and this massive massive temple the the courtyard then for for the men um, Jews and and then the the priestly courtyard and then beyond that again the the holy of holies and and maybe it was in just delighting himself walking around the various courtyards and so forth just just enjoying a, such a place and thinking I wonder if this is like an image like a snapshot a little bit. Like what heaven would be like, i wonder if I wonder if heaven and and god 's god 's temple there god 's god 's real house in the heavenlies is 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 a bit like this. I mean we know that he has has come to dwell amongst us and and the Ark of the Covenant, as it were, was pictured the throne of God, and so there he was there but 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 yet yet there was another sense in which there was so much more, and I wondered if. I wonder if the earthly temple and courtyards was perhaps what the psalmist may have pictured when he said, better is just one day in your court, in your presence here than a thousand, a thousand elsewhere. Well, moving on from a, another temple, from Solomon's temple to Herod's temple, where Jesus had spent some days there in the, the courtyards of this particular temple. This was an interesting one because, as we said a few weeks ago, you had the. It was a massive, like a picture about nine hundred meters by nine hundred meters. Splendid, beautiful, pristine white marble. I mean, the temple was amazing. Big gold plates on it. When the sun rose, it hit those gold plates, and all around Jerusalem, you would see this. I mean, it was it was amazing. I said, and it was a throwaway, throwaway line. But you know, I reckon it's probably true in terms of just area. It makes the um, Parthenon at the Acropolis in Athens probably look like a garden shed. This temple was incredible, and you can imagine walking around it, just feeling so. Oh, it's like Westfield. You know, you could just imagine the awe and the wonder. And just feeling like, wow, this is incredible. The courtyard, the general courtyard, the, the courtyard for the Gentiles, for the women, for the men, for the priests, and then the Holy of Holies, and then rip past, you know, open the curtain, and there's nothing in there. There is no ark. The presence of God was never said to have fallen upon this temple like it had fallen upon the last. So where was God? God? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. But where's God? He was out in the courtyards. Jesus said to Philip on one occasion, Philip, don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <laughs> it, wasn't the, it wasn't behind the curtains in the Holy of Holies that you would find God. There was no throne for him to be enthroned upon. He was out there actually in the courtyards mingling with people and teaching. So imagine the audacity of the Pharisees and the Herodians in the passage we're about to look at when they come to him with a trick question. (laughs) This was another episode in, in a number of attacks On the authority of Jesus? By whose authority are you doing this? Why was it such a big deal about Jesus' authority? Why, Why is it being undermined like this? Quite simply, because if it could be proven that Jesus was only acting out on human authority, then you can totally dismiss his claims. You can dismiss Jesus, you can dismiss his ministry, you can dismiss everything. If it can be proven that Jesus is simply acting on human authority, then he can be dismissed. Same is true today. If a person is only acting in their own authority, you can dismiss them. If Jesus was only ever acting on human authority, you can dismiss that as well. But the reverse is also true. If he is acting under divine authority, then you must accept him. And you must accept his claims. This is why it is all so important. We read that his last encounter in chapter 12 was with the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, but now the Pharisees and the Herodians are sent. And of the Herodians, it's perhaps like the disciples that are sent. This little crowd, and these are kind of strange bedfellows because the Pharisees and the Herodians normally would have nothing to do with each other, and they're all coming together to, to try and catch Jesus in his words. But it's a bit of an uneven contest. I saw a video clip the other day of a chess player, Magnus Carlsen, no ordinary chess player. At 13, he won his first world championship. He's the current, he's the current world champion and grandmaster. It has been for several years I think it's widely thought that nobody's going to surpass him. He's brilliant. And anyway, as a bit of an exhibition on this one occasion, they brought him in, and he was to play chess blindfolded against three people who had three times the amount of time that he did. And so they kind of set it up, and over over here, they kind of had a long table and a chess board and and a financier, a guy who was just brilliant with figures and uh, well known for his chess prowess and then next to him was a scientist, brilliant mind and again a chess board well known for his ability in chess and then the third one was a bit surprising, he was an actor and you know, I guess he was, you know, he enjoyed chess. And then, and then there was the, the comparer um, and then over here sitting on a stool was Magnus Carlsen and he had this blindfold on and, um, and he couldn't see. Any of the three players he couldn 't see the chess boards he couldn 't actually see the moves. so so how this would go was you had uh, two two guys sort of hovering, and one would call out the the shots of these various players, and the other would 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 call out magnus 's shots and so he 's over here, and so player one you know says, "I want to move my my pawn to i don 't know that 's all mapped out on a grid you know." C5 or something, if that's, a, you know, that's how it works. So, you know, um, such and such a pawn to C5. And so over here, um, you know, Magnus is, is mapping it out in his head. And what he's got to do is he's, he's only got nine minutes per play. And they they've kind of hit a timer as they go. He's only got nine minutes. The other guys have 27 minutes. In 27 minutes, they've got to somehow somehow beat him. He's mapping out three different boards in his head and strategizing and thinking about each move. And, and each move he's thinking about not only the particular variables and, and so forth, but he's but he's kind of already already predicting that and mapping it all out strategically speaking. And the first guy to four was the actor as it happened, who was possibly just acting. And then the, the second guy to four was the financier. Um, he had something to do with Wall Street, so that's not a surprise either. And then the third guy. I think finally, finally, he couldn't beat him either. And, and it was what was incredible. It was incredible just to watch the video. And I'm, you know, I, I'm not sort of a, a chess aficionado or anything like that, but I, I sort of just enjoyed watching this. But the comparer actually said, right at the, right at the start, he said, This is a very unfair contest. And of course, you're thinking, oh, yeah, because he's got a blindfold on. No, no, it was was unfair to these guys because they were just competing with a grandmaster and they were all bound to lose. And that's how you kind of feel these little contests in the courtyard with Jesus are. It's just unfair. It's quite fascinating. In the passage we're about to have a look at, they're trying to catch him in their words, but they do not actually realise that they are talking to the living word of God. How do you catch out the living word of God in his words? Like how do you do that? It's just an, an unfair contest. So turn with me to to Mark chapter 12 and let's just read these four verses. It's a very, very simple passage. You'll be very familiar with it, verses 13 to 17. Chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. We'll read it, we'll read it all now and then go back and reflect on it in a moment. A most unfair contest. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay, or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? And they were amazed at him. The plot here is is very simple. A trick question veiled in flattery. The, The imperial tax is not an ordinary tax. If you were a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay this tax. So you would only pay this tax if you were a foreigner subject to the rule of Rome. In other words, you are a conquered person, and for that, I'm going to tax you. And so there's a sense in paying the imperial tax in which it kind of is, all right, yes, I am subject to your rule. <laughs> and so within, within Jewish thought, there were, there were a number of different attitudes towards this. The zealots, of course, were, no, don't pay the tax, we're subject to nobody but God. The Pharisees, well, we're subject to nobody but God, but I guess you got to pay the tax. And the Herodians, pay the tax, keep the peace. We've got it good. you know. And so that's kind of the different attitudes that, that there would, have been, would have been present. And as I say, that's why it's a little bit strange for the Pharisees and the Herodians to, to join together in this. The flattery, that might be to counter, I don't know, I've wondered this, it might be to counter the tact that Jesus used in chapter 11, verse 29, where he says, I'll answer your question if you'll answer my question. And because they couldn't answer it, he never answered theirs, although he does go on and tell them what the answer should have been with the parable of the tenants. But, but this may have been, the flattery may have been a way to kind of try and you know get around the question with a you know I answer your question with a question type tactic to kind of force a response. Why? Because they really thought they had him here. The crowd would have been divided on this issue and there would have been strong feelings. Whichever answer Jesus gave, he couldn't please everyone. So they make a point of saying, "But you don't try to please man, do you? You you just tell the truth and try to try to please God." So they kind of, you know, are just baiting and setting this up. How is he going to answer? And yet, as I say, it's quite an unfair, fair contest. And as always, I guess, the question, should we, should we pay? Should we pay the tax? Of course, it was, it was a bit divisive then, and it's easy to just separate ourselves out from biblical times to now and, and kind of say, wow, that was, that was a tricky question then. We sure know what to do. But, but it's a good question to ask ourselves as well today. Because behind the question, should we pay the tax, is another question. It's, should we recognise the authority? Should we recognise the authorities that are over us? Do you think as Australians that's ever worth kind of considering from time to time? I mean, we worldwide have a reputation for being very egalitarian and not that great with authority. And I guess... There can be times where, you know, even in civil matters, we might vote at a state election or a federal election and we might not like the result. But what's our attitude after that? Do we say, well, that didn't go the way I liked. I didn't vote for him. I don't recognise that particular Premier or I don't recognise that particular Prime Minister. How do you reckon that's gonna go for you at tax time? But maybe we don't feel particularly sympathetic towards their policies and so forth. So at tax time, if we can leverage things just a little bit in our favour, because frankly, I actually don't like the government spending, would we do it? That's a good question always to ask, isn't it? It's a question of authority, not just giving, not just paying taxes, but it's a question of do we recognise the authorities that have being placed a place over us? And the answer Jesus gives is is quite fascinating. I guess in one sense, in referring, in calling for a coin and, and referring to the, the image that is upon the coin, Jesus makes the point that where the image is, it reflects ownership. It does reflect authority. He sees through the flattery, flattery. and so in that sense, there is, there is no contest whatsoever. He asks the question, whose image and whose inscription is upon this denarius? And, and, and it's a, this silver coin actually had a picture of Caesar on one side with the inscription Of him as the high priest, and it had him dressed in a high priestly robe, and and with a crown on his head, a diadem, and and I guess, I guess it could have been quite insulting to the Jews, who kind of say, "Well, he's not our high priest," and yet holding that coin, Jesus asks, "Whose image is on it? Whose inscription?" And he recognizes that authority. One of the interesting things, I, I guess, about authority is you might wonder, huh, where, funnily enough, where does authority come from? When, when is it introduced? Is it actually introduced after the fall? When everything goes wrong, does God then introduce authority on, you know, in earthly matters because, well, it's all gone to pot? Actually, No. Authority is actually introduced earlier than that, genesis one twenty six. God gives responsibility and authority to all peoples to steward well his creation. And then in verse twenty seven, he then reflects that we have been made in the image of God, and therefore, as God has authority and we are made in his image, we are reflecting the image of God when we exercise authority. Isn't that interesting? It's like God actually delegates, I'm going to make you in my image, and, well, actually, part of of my image is the fact that I have authority over all things. If you were to be made in my image, then you too are to have authority over something. I give you authority to steward my creation well. And you'll do it best when you do it in my image. There it is actually established, not after the fall, when everything goes wrong, but beforehand as part of the created order. It was always to be. And then interestingly enough too, that in chapter 3, when we're looking at the repercussions of the fall of mankind, authority is not taken off Adam and Eve. It's not taken out of their hands. You know how it is. Somebody's helping you out with a task. You give them some authority and they they misuse it in some way. What's your temptation? Is to say, well, I'm going to take that authority off you then, right? You would have thought that maybe this was the time that God would say, oh, Adam, Eve, you really spoiled that one. <laughs> no more authority. There are repercussions from the four, but taking authority away from them is not one of them. In fact, the repercussions have to do with, no, you still have the same responsibility to steward creation. Well, you have similar authority to what you have. You've now lost my image, so you're not going to be able to do it in my power. You're going to have to do it in yours. The main thing that changes is that all creation is now going to be in rebellion against you. It's now going to be a really tough job. So they still have authority and responsibility to steward creation, but it is in rebellion against them, and it's going to be a very, very tough gig because they can't do it in the same power, having lost the image of God. But authority is established very early on in Scripture as a, as a pretty much an enduring principle, and it goes all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, and it is still something that, that Jesus acknowledges here, even of a, of a pagan civil ruler who sets himself up as a high priest. And yet Jesus astoundingly says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Then he goes on and says, of course, and give to God that which is is God's. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. They were amazed at the reply. We've got to be careful probably in trying to understand, okay, well, what's the application of that today? What what does that mean? Probably got to be careful to not thinking that this is dividing things up, which is frankly the way that we often think in Christian circles. Ah, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, divide, cut off a portion, that's 10%. Uh, or actually Caesar, sorry. Um, uh, that's, I don't know, tax brackets. Anything from what, 30 to 50% is it? You know, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, that's a 30 to 50%. Shh. And then, and then my tithe to God—that's ten percent—and maybe that ten percent should be before net gross, net gross. Oh Anyway, ten percent to God, thirty to fifty percent for Caesar, and the rest is mine. Yay. Well, that's kind of the way we sometimes divide it up. But can I suggest that it's that it's not a dividing up so much as it is an apportioning? Think fraction instead of division, perhaps, if if that helps. It's a. It's a little bit like saying it all belongs to God, but, but God is happy to apportion a certain amount to a civil authority. It's a little bit like the question, who owns the sky? Until we had aeroplanes, nobody had to think about that. Who owns the sky? Well, that's ridiculous. We all do. Um, I imagine, and, and, you know, what is it, airspace? Like, what's airspace? Imagine, you know, um, oh, happy birthday. I bought you some airspace. Great, thank you. Where over Siberia? It's lovely. You know, uh, what's air, what value is airspace? Well, all of a sudden, when we have plane travel, we're going to fly from A to B. We're we're flying over sovereign nations and so forth, and. Let's start to get a bit thingy about their airspace. And so we recognise certain airspace within the parameters of a territory and we say, well, that's that country's sovereign airspace. They have certain rights. They can control that airspace to a certain degree, unless you can get a plane high enough that it can spy on it anyway. and Nobody knows. But, but that's a different matter. Essentially, do you really own the airspace? I don't know. We all kind of share it, don't we? Which is why it would be really nice to just look after the air up there, because we're all sharing the same air. But but we do have and we recognise certain control over areas of airspace nonetheless. But it sort of all belongs to all of us and should be shared. Well, there's a sense in which everything belongs to God, but God apportions to the civil authorities what is owed to them. And so with this very, very simple answer... God clarifies for us, give to give to the authorities that make your roads and turn your lights on and street lights and and kind of kind of build bridges and parks and all of those. Give to your civil authorities what what is due because of because of the good governance that that they look after look after civil affairs and matters. Give give to them what is due, but give to God what is God's. And it all rests on this basic principle of Jesus, that the image declares the ownership. The Passion Translation actually renders this verse, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, actually renders it this way. The coin bears the image of Caesar, so you should pay the emperor his portion. But because you bear the image of God, You must give back to God all that belongs to him. Quite simply, if I had to just sum up what's the biblical principle when it comes to this matter of finances, quite simply, I would say it's this. When you agree that God owns it all, you can never be owned by anything else. You'll never be enslaved. To work out how you are with regards to matters of authority, the way you use your finances isn't a bad litmus test. Matthew 6.21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is, is how Jesus gets to the crux of the matter. You know... And this is really important because uh, there are many of you who are younger in the congregation here and, and you're, not, you're not yet managing household budgets and mortgages and all of those sorts of things, but you probably are trying to understand how best to set yourself up in life and, and well, how to, how to have that right attitude towards these things. You don't have a lot, so you could be forgiven for thinking that I'm off the hook. I'm not greedy, I have nothing. But here's the thing it's not about how much you have, it's about how much you want it. You can have very, very little and yet be extremely content. And you can have everything and be very discontent. It's not how much you have, it's how much you want it. And Jesus says, Watch that posture. Watch that posture. The best way to be, to be free, the best way to never be enslaved to finances, to be fearful about money, always preoccupied with it, always worrying about it, always talking about it, the best way is to just acknowledge God's absolute and complete ownership over everything. Because what he owns, you can never own. And what he owns means that you can never be owned. It's the most beautiful way to be free of all worries and concerns in this life. And I could possibly really zero in on this part, and, and this, could be a, this could be one of those awkward sermons from the pastor about our giving, you know. <laughs> but I actually don't think that's essentially the thrust of the passage. Oh, it has implications for our giving. But the real principle here is is much richer. It's essentially this: the one who bears the image of God belongs to God, because the image reflects ownership. Show me a coin. You can determine the ownership simply by looking at the image. Show me your life. You can determine who owns that life by what image is reflected in that life. The one who bears the image of God belongs to God. Imagine for a moment Jesus in this this courtyard moment with this tricky question veiled thinly with some flattery imagine imagine him there but instead of saying bring me a coin he says bring me your life and and somebody a willing willing person who loves god truly loves god comes up and and maybe it's you. And you've come out of the crowd because you love Jesus and you trust Jesus and you're not quite sure where he's going, but you're okay with that because you, you know he loves you. And you come up out of the crowd, and he says, bring me your life. And, and he says, says to you, Who's, whose image is on you and whose inscription is written on your heart? Well, you've been in church long enough to know that the theologically correct answer is you, Lord, God? (laughs) He says, correct, (laughs) correct answer. But is it the one you truly believe? Do you believe that is how you are seen in heaven, my son? Because remember, we started this journey in Mark by by thinking about this little phrase, learning to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. And here is one of those passages in Mark that is getting to the crux of it, the image of God. When I think about most of the the triumphs of the Christian life, I think about people who have learnt to understand their identity in Christ and they're walking triumphantly in that. When I think about most of the challenges or difficulties in the Christian life, people struggling, 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 I reckon identity is one of the issues. It's why I love the Freedom in Christ course. I'm so glad that so many of you you folk here are doing it. I know many of you young adults are doing it. I just want you to know I'm doing it as well, not just to say that I've done it. Really, Stuart? You're doing it? Yeah. I mean, I read Neil Anderson's stuff some 30 years ago, and I, I wrote a course based on it. It's good stuff. And if you're doing it right now, the Freedom in Christ course, you know there's nothing too tricky in it. It's just truth. I just want to tell you, you never get too old for truth. It's just truth. Got to hear it again. And I'm not doing it just so I can say, oh, look, even the pastor has done this course. No, I'm doing it looking for how God might minister to me afresh the truths of just understanding who I am in Christ and being more and more free. And so I commend it, commend it too. I'm delighted that as sort of a foundation, so many in our church are, are, looking, are looking at that. But do you believe it? Whose image is in you? Whose inscription is written on your heart? Whose image is in you? Uh, Where could we... So many places we could go. John 17, 22. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, I pray, Heavenly Father, that... Well, no, it's a declaration. I have given to them, speaking of the disciples, the glory that you gave me. You gave me your glory. I have given... That glory to them. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Your glory, your character, your, your image in me is now in them. Colossians 1.27, this mystery revealed of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ actually resident within you. The image of God restored to you. So, question again. Whose image is in you? You can truly say, based on Scripture, yours, God. Your image is truly in me. Whose inscription is on your heart? What about Romans 1.6? You have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ. His name is written on your heart. To belong to Jesus Christ. So you can answer that question, not just theologically, you God. <laughs> you can answer that question with confidence, you God. <laughs> your image is in me, your inscription is on my heart. I belong to you. And and yes, that would be absolutely correct. And part, of, part of what I think we've got to do more and more is is not only understanding that that is true, but learning to, to walk in that, to walk in that. Who has a coin with them tonight? We don't carry coins around very often, do we? Anyone got a coin in their pocket? Anyone got a coin? Oh, oh, Ollie, why don't you bring that out? You, sorry, I, I should have caught that. Come come on out and I'll ask you some questions about your coin. That's a nice one. I only got 20 cents this morning. That's a buck. Cool. Third of a way to a coffee there. Tell me, Hadassah or Ollie, whose, whose image is on the coin there? <laughs> this morning, Blair tried to convince the congregation it was my image. <laughs> kind of really freaky, huh? <laughs> Who's, who have we got there? Elizabeth II. Happy birthday, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But this isn't all about her birthday. So, <laughs> okay, it's the, it's the Queen's image. And what, what value is, is on that? Well, I, I kind of gave that away, didn't I? Yeah. One dollar. One dollar is the value. Okay. Whose image is on this man? God's. Yeah, and if you flip, flip him around, <laughs> imagine, imagine a cross there. What's the value on this man? Priceless. Priceless, infinite. For God so loved Ollie Crispin. You see the cross he sent his one and only son, the son of God gave his life for Ollie Maybe Ollie, now you can ask that of Hadassah. Whose whose image is Hadassah made in? God's image. And he so loved Hadassah that he sent his only son as well. We as a church have that privilege as we celebrate every time we dedicate a child of raising them up into that knowledge. It's It's a beautiful thing. You can look at the person on your left and your right. Like, please, enjoy an awkward moment. Um, thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Hadessa. You can keep the coin. You might have seen them coming in and thought, oh, it's Bronwyn, oh, it's Josh, oh, it's Aaron, oh it's Bal. You might have mistakenly thought that, but but let me now ask you now to look at them in a new light. Do you realize you're sitting beside a child of God? Whoa! Get their autograph. <laughs> you are sitting beside a child of God. And it then is, it is actually right to think of the incredible value that has been placed on your life by being made in the image of God and having his inscription upon you. And it is correct to think of others in the family of God in the same way. In fact, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 to 18, really around there, Paul is talking about this ministry of reconciliation he has and how is it possible for us to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another? Well, reconciled to God by no longer viewing Jesus in the worldly way that we used to view him, understanding who Jesus really is. And as we do that, we're reconciled to God. But then, huh? We're reconciled to one another by no longer viewing one another in the worldly way we used to view one another, but recognising that each one is a precious creation, a child of God. In fact, that's where we get that wonderful verse. If you haven't memorised this yet, that's this week's job. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. That's the context within the context of the ministry of reconciliation. That's the context in which we have that verse. That's how we're to view ourselves. That's how we're to view one another. And that's how there can be reconciliation. It's a beautiful beautiful thing. And so understanding the power of the image of God upon you and upon one another is a powerful tool for walking as you were known in heaven and for enabling others to walk that walk as well. That's how we encourage each, each other to do the same. The one who bears the image of God belongs to God. Here's a statement, just in closing, before we come to share communion together. I want you to think about this statement regarding submission to God and and God's authority. I come under the authority of the Lord God almighty Now you can actually say that in two different ways or at least two two that I can think of You can say that as a prayer of submission you know a prayer of surrender if you like I come under the authority of the Lord God almighty But then There's a beautiful release and freedom in that and a recognition of what that means so that it can also be equally not just a prayer of surrender but a prayer of praise. (laughs) I come under the authority of the Lord God Almighty. It's a little bit like this one too. Everything I have belongs to you, Lord. everything I have belongs to you, Lord. My future is in your hands, God. My future is in your hands, God. My well-being, I give it to you. My well-being, I've given it to you. You see how how that prayer of surrender becomes a prayer of praise. See how handing things over to God all of a sudden delivers you and gives you great freedom. God is calling us, each and every one of us, to give him your all, A-double-L. Give him your all. And then to live in his all. Give him your all and then live in his all. That's the invitation to each and every one of us. And it's all based on the fact that you bear the image of God through Jesus Christ. And if you doubt that fact, we're going to prove it right now around the Lord's table because we're going to... We're going to, in a minute, we're going to take up two, two symbols, wine and bread, and they simply simplify symbolise the blood of Christ which was shed for you and I and the body of Christ which was broken for you and I. Two symbols that testify to the fact that your sins have been forgiven, they have been atoned for, and you now have a new life in Jesus Christ. You bear his image, you do. Let's pray together, shall we? And then we'll, we'll come around the table. Lord Jesus, this is a profound truth, and I realise that it is very easy for us to talk about in one sense at a distance, but it is a profound truth which we need your spirit to testify to our spirit that we truly are sons and daughters of the living God. This is where we need that that work of your spirit. And and if tonight you're sitting there and you're struggling, you're hearing my words, but you're just struggling to take in the truth of it, I, I understand that. And you might even want to just offer up a very simple prayer Father, I want to believe that I am made in your image. In Jesus, I want to believe that image has been restored. Help me. Help me to grasp your truth. Help me to believe truly. That in Jesus I now stand right with you. He's covered your sin, and he's covered you, the sinner. The father looks at the blood of his son and he says it's sufficient. Who are we to disagree? We want to thank you, Jesus, that wherever we're coming from, whatever we may have done, it's never too much for your atoning work. If we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just. You forgive us our sin and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for these two reminders, your shed blood, your broken body, that you have us covered. And as we place our trust in you, you have indeed restored your image within us. We praise you.